Hey everyone, welcome to the Southside Church Podcast from Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. We're praying that hope would rise in your life as you listen to this message today. Well, happy Thanksgiving everybody, whether you're watching online or in person. One of the things that I am thankful for is that we get to continue this journey through the Gospel of John. I'm looking forward to jump into John chapter 2 today, but before we do, I want to set the stage just a little bit. So what we're going to study today is one of only seven miracles performed by Jesus before his resurrection that are recorded in John's gospel. And the reason I said only seven is because if you look through the other three New Testament gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of them record over 20 miracles of Jesus before his resurrection. So what's John's problem, you know? Like, does he have ADHD? He's playing Wordle on his Blackberry curve, and he looks up seven times and sees what Jesus is doing. I would suggest that's not the case. In fact, at the end of John's gospel, he says this, there are so many other things Jesus did. If they were all written down, each of them, one by one, I can't imagine a world big enough to hold such a library of books. In other words, John says, I couldn't write it all down, but I wrote these seven down. Okay, and, and, and John doesn't refer to them as miracles, actually. He calls them signs. Signs, and the Greek word that we translate signs is actually simeon, which led to the Latin word signum. Signum is where we get the word signal, or significant, or signature. Man, I really like that, signature. It's like how an artist finishes their painting and then signs their name. Seven times, John says, God writes his name on the pages of history. He says, this is me. This is my plan. This is my purpose. This is my love for you. This is me. And so I'm so excited to jump into the first of seven signatures written by Jesus Recorded by John. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Three days later, there was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Now, if we looked carefully at first century Jewish culture, we could find a lot of things that were wrong with it. But one thing they got right was how much they valued people. Like, the wedding banquet was the biggest party of the year. It really kind of hit me, you know. Because if you would have gone back to 16-year-old Mike Manis, 18-year-old Mike Manis, 20-year-old Mike Manis, and you would have said, hey man, what are the things that you're going to celebrate the most in the decades to come? What are the things that you're going to be most grateful for? What are the things that you're going to be most excited about? I would not have said family. I would not have. I would have maybe said a hot wife, maybe. (laughs) Ski boat, sweet car, nice house. Blah, blah, blah. And yet, every single morning when I do my devotions, I take some time looking at the last 24 hours. And then I look at what I'm grateful for specifically over the last 24 hours, and every single day, family comes up. Every day. My wife, Corinne, my kids, my kids in law, my two grandsons. It's pretty amazing. So I would say this to you that. First century Jewish culture had something right in the way that they celebrated family. And I say that with some trepidation because I do understand this, that every family is different. And last week we talked about the fact that maybe your family 
whether you're online or in person, that you look back, as far as anyone can see, going back generations in your family tree, there's this cycle of sorrow, right? Hurting people, hurting people, broken people, breaking people. But what I want to suggest to you is that God has a plan for your family, and that plan is going to play out through you, that Jesus wants to hand you an ax to take to the poisonous roots of your family tree to make a new start. It really matters. People were important. People were important. They had the seven-day wedding feast, seven days. Okay, so on the day of the wedding, there was a big banquet. Everybody in the village, friends and family from surrounding villages would join in a party. And then for the next six days, the young couple would go from close friend to family member, and they would have these little mini banquets. But on that first day, it was a banquet with everybody there. And everybody knew each other. Everybody knew each other, you know? It's like there's so many cool things about the technology in our world today. But back then, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Wi-Fi. They didn't have television. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have cars. They didn't have garages. Their leisure time was mainly spent hanging out with each other. Even when they worked, they worked together. So this party would have been incredible. Everybody knowing each other, feeling known by one another. We had a couple COVID weddings in the Mattis family. First, Lucas got married to Lexi during COVID, and then later, Emma married Vigeli during COVID. And when you had a COVID wedding, like there was a lot of numerical restrictions, right? And we were really bummed out at first. Like there were so many more people that we would have liked to invite that we couldn't invite, but we couldn't. But when they were over, we actually were really grateful for the COVID weddings. Because there's something incredible about officiating a wedding or standing at a wedding reception and looking around and knowing every single person there is deeply, deeply significant to this young couple. I got nothing against big weddings. But I do kind of, fun, kind of funny in big weddings how you see the husband and wife standing there in the receiving line and someone will come walking up and the husband will look at the wife, the wife will look at the husband and they'll be like, do you know where that is? No, I have no idea. You know, <laughs> just smile and say, thank you for coming. Corinne and I had a pretty big wedding. I remember in the receiving line after our wedding, there's this guy came walking up. I said to Corinne, who is that? She said, oh, that's Uncle Buck. Not his real name. You'll know why I changed his name in a second. Okay, she said, that's Uncle Buck. I'm like, that's your uncle? She's like, well, no, it's a friend of my mom's family, but we call him Uncle, Uncle Buck. So Uncle Buck is clearly liquored up, okay? So he's already been at work, okay, leading into the ceremony. He comes walking up, and he leans in as if he's going to give Corinne a kiss on the cheek. So she leans in, but Uncle Buck pulled a fast one. He kissed her on the lips. And visibly and obviously slipped her the tongue, okay, right in the receiving line. <laughs> and so you say, well, Mike, did you punch Uncle Buck in the head? I, I did not. I was flabbergasted. I was absolutely flabbergasted. My best man, Grant King, was standing beside me. I said, Grant, that just happened, right? He's like, yes, Mike. Yes, it did. And Uncle Buck shook my hand and Grant's hand and off into the sunset Uncle Buck went. So let that be a lesson to you. I actually have no idea why I told that story. Kind of funny, though. <sighs> But I remember after Lucas and Lexi's wedding and after Edmund Vigeli's wedding, these dance parties broke up. Probably illegal during COVID, but it happened, okay? And I gotta tell you, best parties I've ever been to. 
I think it's why when Jesus describes eternity, eternal life, one of the illustrations he used is the wedding banquet. To know and to be known. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. So Jesus is about 30 years old. His earthly father, Joseph, is dead. In fact, most scholars agree that the reason why Jesus didn't begin his ministry years, why he stayed at home, didn't start traveling until he was 30, is because he stayed at home to look after his mom until his younger siblings were old enough to take over. But it should be noted that Jesus got invited to this wedding. It should be noted that Jesus got invited to this wedding. It should be noted that Jesus got invited to this wedding. And you look at me and go, so what? Well, so what to you, man? Because I want you to think of something. I want you to think of something. Think about, this is the party of the year. Party of the year, right? So ask yourself this question. People who claim to follow Jesus in our, in our culture, the churchiest, churchy, churchy, churchy people, are they more or less likely to get invited to the party of the year than the average? I would say less likely. And then I would further say it shouldn't be that way. Jesus was the kind of person who got invited to those kind of weddings. Years ago, I heard Andy Stanley say it this way. People who were nothing like Jesus really liked Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus really liked Jesus. Man, I want that to be true of me. I want it to be true of you too. Anyone who calls Southside Church home, people who are nothing like Jesus really like Jesus, and he really liked them. They invited Jesus to their wedding, good idea. You're gonna see played out really well for this young couple. But I should say this, that Jesus is not a wedding crasher. The team called this sermon a miracle. I wanted to call it Jesus is not a wedding crasher because it's important. A little long, a little weird, okay, so they overruled me. They called it a miracle. But, but, but here's the thing. Jesus is not a wedding crasher. Here's what I mean. Jesus will not force his way, will not bully his way, will not kick the door down into any area of your life where he is not invited. Could he? Yes, he won't. Jesus is not a wedding crasher. He's not going to show up in any area of your life in which he is not invited. So you should probably invite him to your wedding. Played out awesome for this young couple. You should invite him to your marriage. Over the years of being married, there's two consistent questions I get from people regarding my marriage. Number one, Mike, why would a cool person like Corinne marry a wingnut like you? Okay, that's question number one. And I'm always like, I have no idea. It's funny because I think they think it's an insult. I'm thinking it's awesome. You married way out of your league, Mike. I'm like, I know, I know. It's so cool. I love it so much. But the second question I get over and over again is this. Mike, you have an awesome marriage. Agree, by the way. I agree with that. You and Corinne are really, really good together. I concur. How do you pull it off? Give us some tips. Man, that's a tough question. See, I think when people ask that question, they, may, they maybe are looking for tips. 
like quick things. Eat dinner together every night, no matter what. Go on a date night once a week, no matter what. Buy each other sweet Valentine's gifts, Valentine's, I said, Valentine's gifts every year, no matter what. I could stand up here and say that. The problem would be, is I would be hypocrite. I would be lying if I said that. Because we didn't always do that. Eat dinner together every night. We have six kids, right? Okay, so they're all really, really, they were really, really involved in a lot of activities. Eat dinner, eat dinner together once in a while would be a major victory for us when the kids were growing up. Go on a date night every week. Did I mention we had six kids? Yeah, so no money a lot, right? Oh, you could have gone for a walk, Mike. That's free. I know, we could have, and often we did not. Okay, I'm just telling you the truth. Buy each other sweet Valentine's presents every year. Man, many years, it would be like February 20th, and I look at Corinne and go, wait a minute, it was Valentine's Day last week. Happy Valentine's Day, sweetheart. That's just the truth. Man, those things are probably good ideas, but I'm just not gonna lie to you and pretend that we always did them. What did we do? We invited Jesus into our marriage. We were really, really young when we got married. I was 22, Kurt was 21, and I'm not gonna speak for her, but I will say this about me, I had a lot of room to grow. But one thing I did know, one thing we did know is right from square one, we invited Jesus into our marriage. How do you do that? It's really simple. Just in a humble fashion. Say, Jesus, we need you. I need your help. Because there's gonna be days when I'm running low on patience and kindness and selflessness, I need you to help me. Jesus, I need you to help me to become the husband that I need to be. I need you to help me to become the wife that I need to be, whatever it is. And what's really cool is I'm not saying you should get married young or you should get married old. I'm not into that. But one thing unique that happened for Corinne and I, being married young and inviting Jesus in from day one, we kind of grew up together. But I will say this, Jesus is not a wedding crasher. There is no area of your life that he's going to force his way into. He could, but he won't. He's not going to bully his way into any area of your life. He's not going to kick the door down into any area of your life. He will wait to be invited. When they started running low on wine at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him, they're just about out of wine. So that's a nightmare. In this culture, that is a nightmare. This is the biggest party of the year. So this young couple is poor. They got together all the money they could possibly get together, hoping that they could buy enough wine, and now it's not going to be enough. In this culture, if you brought a young couple a bad wedding gift, I'm not making this up, you could be sued. Thanks for the second-hand toaster. You'll be hearing from my lawyer, mister. Okay, like, but you could. And if you ran out of wine, you could be sued. But not only would this young couple be facing litigation, but they would be the losers who didn't hold up their end of the deal for the rest of their lives. So Mary approaches Jesus and says, hey, they're running out of wine, hoping that he'll do something. Jesus says, is that any of our business, mother, yours or mine? This isn't my time. Don't push me. That seems pretty abrupt. 
right? I want to explain two reasons why Jesus responds the way he does. Number one, Jesus knows something that Mary does not know. Jesus knows that if he performs a miracle in this situation, that he's beginning a journey. He can't hide anymore. That if he performs a miracle in this situation, he can't hide anymore, and it sets off a journey that he knows, Mary doesn't know, he knows will lead him to dying on a Roman cross. So this is it. If he's going to perform this miracle, this is the beginning of the journey. That's the first reason Jesus is a little abrupt. And here's the second reason. He's 30 years old. He's about to launch into his earthly ministry. And he knows this. For Mary, she needs to now transition from seeing Jesus as primarily her son to now seeing him primarily as her savior. We all do. And Mary does. We'll see as we continue our journey through John. Mary's still confident, though. She went, she went ahead anyway, telling the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. I love that. Six stoneware water pots were there, used by the Jews for ritual washings. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. So Jesus is about to do something pretty cool with that water. And here's the question that I would ask you. Did he need to involve the servants? No, he didn't. Could Jesus have come through for this young couple, saved them from litigation, saved them from shame, without the help of the servants? Yes, he could have. He could have performed this miracle without the servants. So why in the world would he involve these servants? It's really, really important you and I understand this. Why would he involve these servants? It was an act of kindness. It was an act of kindness. I got this picture this week of these servants for the rest of their lives, telling their kids, telling their grandkids, telling anyone who would listen, hey, yo, did I tell you about the time that we almost ran out of wine at that wedding? His kids are like, you know, like a hundred times, dad. Yeah, yeah, I know, it was crazy, right? So run out of wine, everything's locked. Jesus walks up to me and says, hey, Bob, you and I, we gotta do something amazing here, so I need you to fill these things up. I did, I filled my pot up right to the brim, I filled it up. That's why Jesus invited the servants to be a part of it. Not because he needed them, but because he was being kind to them. It's really pretty, pretty cool. Because Jesus is still at work in our world. He's doing a work of restoration in our world to this very day. He's restoring this world one life, one story at a time. And the question that must be asked when we read this particular signature of Jesus on the pages of human history is this. Why would he invite you and me to be a part of it? Kindness. Why would he invite you and me to be a part of this incredible work of restoration that is playing out in our world, one life, one story at a time? Kindness. So we stand up here sometimes, we say, man, it'd be awesome if you would serve at church. For who? Mostly for you. If Jesus is telling the truth, that there's this thing called the upside down reality of the open-handed life, 
that you actually get more than giving than you do by taking. Cool, right? The other day I was hanging around some staff members and they were coming up with this list of things that they would love to see for the people at Southside Church. And one of the things on the list said, give, give, they're talking about finances now, fun to talk about that at church, right? Give, give sacrificially. Give sacrificially. And I said, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Thanks for sharing, they said. Thanks for sharing, Mike. Thanks for being so honest. Why don't you like it? Oh, because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. That's not how it's played out in my life. Give sacrificially. Huh. Did I mention that Jesus is not a wedding crasher? Did I say that already? I said that, right? Oh, thank you. Somebody nodded. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, so... They're like, I don't know, man. What's the, G, Jesus is always the answer at church. No, th- in this case, it was yes. Okay, I, I did mention it before. Quite non-memorably, however, evidently. So, continuing. He's not a wedding crasher. There's no area of your life that he's gonna just jump into. He's not gonna kick the door down into any area of my life. Right? So I talked about the fact that when Corinne and I, I was 22, Corinne was 21, we got married, we invited Jesus into our marriage, we also invited him into our finances from day one. From day one. I'm not gonna force his way in. It's not even a salvation thing. It's not like, if you don't give money, you're going to hell. It's not true. It's not true. Why in the world would Jesus invite me to participate financially with the work that he's doing in the world, kindness? Kindness. Like Corinne and I have always been over and above givers. The Bible says there's an easy way to invite God into your financial world. Here's how it works. It's called the tithe. It's just bring the first 10% of what he gave you back. Give it to the church. And then what you do is you watch him use it to do this work called restoration in a miraculous fashion that plays out in our world one life, one story at a time. That's awesome, and it's cool, and it's so kind. And then, and then he says, oh, by the way, if you trust me, like really trust me. You mean like trust you like with my eternal security, that kind of trust? Yeah, that kind of trust. If you really trust me, here's what you'll find out. You'll find out that if you invite me into your financial world, here's what's happening, it's insane. You'll be blessed more with a 90 after you give the first 10, then you would be able to bless yourself with 100. Huh. So I gotta tell you, I can't relate. To give sacrificially, I could relate to give confidently, give enthusiastically, give expectantly. That makes sense to me. It's just never been a sacrifice for us. Okay, for example. Now fill your pitchers and take them to the host, Jesus said. And they did. When the host tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know what had just happened, but the servants, of course, knew. The servants, they had the inside track, right? Jesus made about a thousand bottles of wine. A thousand bottles of wine. And it's like near the end of the banquet. They're not going to need a thousand bottles of wine. They're not going to need a vast majority of these thousand bottles of wine. In this culture, uh, in, in this time, you know what they did? For the young couple at the end of the marriage banquet, if they had extra wine left over, you know what they would do with it? Sell it. 
So I got to thinking, 1,000 bottles of wine. What can you sell that for? I'll give you a hint. Pretty soon we're about to hear that this is the best wine. This is like not just okay wine, it's like the best wine. 1,000 bottles of wine. The better part of 1,000 bottles of wine, okay? Go sell it. So what can you sell that for, the best wine? I'm going to go back to first century and try to figure out denarii. I was just kind of trying to think of our culture, right? And so I found out there was a bottle of glass sip, slipper, Cabernet Sauvignon, sold for a million dollars a couple years ago, okay? But let's say they're not going to auction it off, all right? Just go around, here's the best wine, and sell it. Well, the best wine in our culture, 250 bucks a bottle. Better part of 1,000 bottles. I bet they're glad they invited Jesus to their wedding. Host calls out to the bridegroom, Everybody I know begins with their finest wines and after the guests have had their fill, brings in the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best till now. It's funny because every time I've heard a pastor preach on this message, they always say it the same way. They're like, okay, everybody's sloshed at this point of the banquet, right? Like they're loaded. And so what you do, they can't even notice. You bring them crappy wine and they don't even know that it's bad. No, no one was sloshed. This was an arid country. You understand? Like dry, dry. Wine was not something you used to get drunk on. Wine was like a blessing. You didn't get drunk in this culture. It wasn't what they did. Okay, so why would you transition to bad wine near the end of the banquet? Here's why. It's a host's way of saying deuces. It's been awesome, right? What a party. What a party. I got to tell you something. If I was out somewhere right now, I would definitely be heading home. Maybe you should do the same, right? That's kind of the message. Party of the year is about to end. The wine just got bad. The party of the year is about to end. The wine, the wine just got bad. Kind of sad, right? But this guy says, you've saved the best till now. This is the first of seven signatures that Jesus writes across the pages of history. Why this detail? I think I know. I think there's people watching online right now. I think there's people in person right now. And you would say, honestly, you got this feeling that your best, your best is behind you. Your best years are behind you. Your best impact is behind you. Your best joy is behind you. Your best days are behind you. But with Jesus, we need to know there's something miraculous that happens. The best is always yet to come. With Jesus, the best is always yet to come. In fact, I would go as far as to say this. When you and I take our last breath on this side of eternity, when we open our eyes into eternal life, the first thing we will say is we'll look at Jesus and say, you saved the best till now. And for all eternity, you and me are going to keep looking at each other going, <laughs> are you kidding me? He saved the best till now. Every day throughout eternity, he saved the best till now. He saved the best adventure. He saved the best joy. He saved the best beauty. He saved the best creativity. He saved the best pleasure. He saved the best fun. He saved the best till now. Party ain't over. Party is just getting started. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign Jesus gave. The first glimpse of his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is Jesus signing his name on the pages of history. It's so cool because in the Bible, joy, sorry, wine represents joy. Okay, wine represents joy. And it's funny too because Jesus 
chooses to turn the water into wine, but he uses these pots. These pots in particular were for ceremonial hand washing. In that culture, you had to please God by washing your hands in just the right way. You had to use the water in these ceremonial pots. You had to earn God's love. You had to measure up. You had to do it right. You had to save yourself through your own efforts. And Jesus showed up and he said, I'll use those pots. Let's bring some joy to this equation. And I think for you and me, we need to understand that, that Jesus looks at us and says, it's not about your effort. It's not about your earning. It's not about your striving. It's not about doing things just the right way. I came to bring you joy. I would go as far as to say this, a, a telltale sign a telltale sign of a life spent knowing Jesus is joy. A telltale sign of a life spent knowing Jesus is joy. So the other day, I'm driving up the driveway to the church, and I'm thinking that. A telltale sign of a life spent knowing Jesus is joy. They're putting a pipeline in, did you notice? It's driving me nuts. Driving me nuts, okay? So I'm thinking a telltale sign of a life spent knowing Jesus is joy. And there's a sign that says slow, so I'm going slow. And I'm going slow, and this guy with a hard hat jumps in front of my car, and he's like this. And my hand's on my door handle, okay? And I'm on my way out of the car. And I'm thinking of the headline already, like, local pastor Mike Manis takes hard hat off of innocent worker, beats him unconscious with it, okay? That flat, I know it's a long headline, but it's not good. It's not good, so I close the door of my car again, I give him a, a thumbs up, and I'm driving, and I'm thinking, really, Mike? A telltale sign. I don't know, like, I just don't think wanting to beat someone unconscious with their own hard hat is a real sign of joy. It's, it's just, I'm just speculating on that. So I kept driving and I was thinking, Jesus is not a wedding crasher. See, because I don't think it's just me. I look around the world today, and I, and, I, and I think of that old quote by the football coach. He said this, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. That's our culture today. Fatigue. There's a lot of tired people, and there's a lot of scared people. There's a lot of tired people, and there's a lot of scared people, which makes a lot of people really grumpy. Tired, scared, and grumpy. See, I don't think it's just me that wants to beat the pipeline workers unconscious with their hard hat. Well, maybe it's just me, that particular thing, but I think we're all struggling with joy. And it hit me again. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is not a wedding crasher. See, I sometimes think there's this concept that says this. Man, when I was 21 years old, I gave my life to Jesus, and it's all been smooth sailing since. You're kidding me, right? The Bible says that God's mercy is new every morning. Have you invited him into your morning? Have you invited him into your day? Have you invited him into your fatigue? Have you invited him into your fear? Have you invited him into your grumpiness? Because here's the truth about me. It had been a while. See, I think that work of restoration that God is doing in our world, I think it starts right here. I think it starts in you and me. Years ago, my... Wife Corinne wrote this story called The Restorer. And yeah, it speaks to that. I'll read it for you. 
You seek to rebuild me, for I am broken. Like a piece of furniture, once a treasure standing in its place with dignity, overwhelming in its natural beauty. The years pass and the treasure becomes a once treasure. The years of neglect stripping it of its purity, plastic flowers adorn its top, their vase scratching the once flawless surface. A coat of yellow paint meant to beautify now hides the natural perfection of the grain. The raw beauty is forgotten. The original beauty of the wood now hidden from sight and lost to memory. Painful is the sight of the once treasure and so it's dragged up the narrow stairs into the attic. It's home now an unremarkable corner occupied by worms and dust. As the attic door closes, the moist dust begins its acidity decay and the worms make the wood their home. The once treasure is forsaken, forgotten to all but you. The years pass slowly for the once treasure, alone in the dusty dark of the attic. Sight of it brings painful reminders of the yellow paint of neglect and the gaudy flowers of abuse and the plastic vase of transgression, transgression that tainted and scarred and bent. So the attic door is locked and the once treasure fades, forgotten to all but you. Hidden for years, yet finally the day comes when a triangle of dust-flecked light invades the dim corner of the once treasure's attic home. Eyes that find the once treasure should be filled with shame, but in these eyes there is recognition and kindness. You blow off the thick layer of dust. You run your scarred and callous carpenter's hand along the blistered worm damaged surface. You bend closer. There beneath the gaudy colors, you see a minute patch of true brown, the grain strong and sure. You smile. You have not forgotten. You straighten up and as you roll up your sleeves, you whisper, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Again, I will rebuild you and you shall be rebuilt. So you set to work, undaunted by the task before you, for this is what you do. You are the restorer. The hours pass and then the days and still you chip and scrape until the yellow paint litters the ground at your feet. You look at the knife that scrapes and the acid that peels and you know that they will leave their scars. Yet you know that without the burning and the stripping, the true wood would be buried forever beneath the years of gaudy yellow paint. Picking up the sandpaper, you begin to smooth the surface of the once treasure. Beneath the gentle persistence of your hand, the wormholes give up their raggedness and the stubborn paint surrenders. At last, you straighten your bent back and say, it is finished. You begin the difficult descent of the narrow attic stairs, carrying the once treasure easily on your back as though familiar with bearing rough burdens. Your eyes find the gaping hole left by the absence of the once treasure and you carefully replace the treasure now restored. It's true that the original shine is lost and the once flawless surface is pocked with smoothed out wormholes and scarred with the marks of the scraping knife. Yet this does not bring dismay for you see that the treasure now restored holds a far greater beauty. For it's now beauty remembers, for it's now beauty remembers the smell of the yellow paint and the weight of the plastic vase and it will not forget the freedom that came from the touch of the carpenter's hand. As the carpenter turns, his work complete, the treasure now restored whispers, thank you, for I've been rebuilt.
See, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think this is a once and for all thing. I think salvation is secured once and for all, but I think joy comes every day. Every day, we need his restoring power every single day. Let's pray. With all heads bowed and all eyes closed, I wanna say it again, he is the restorer. That Jesus stepped into human history, he lived, he died, he rose again so that our hurts can be healed, our sins can be forgiven, we can move past our past. Strength for today, joy for today, hope for tomorrow, a life worth living starts now, stretches into eternity. That's it. It's not about striving, it's not about straining, it's not about earning anything, everything that needed to be done for your salvation has already been accomplished. So I wanna ask you first, if you're here today and you've never invited Jesus into your life, I wanna give you that opportunity to do so right now, to invite him in, to bring you joy, to bring you strength, to bring you restoration. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, you wanna just raise your hand right now because I wanna pray for you. Nice and high if you don't mind, that's amazing, amazing. Online, if you feel comfortable, you can raise your hand too. That's great. If your hand's up, you can put it down. And now I guess I wanna talk to you. Maybe you're not new to the whole church thing. You've been going to church for a while. You've been following Jesus for a while, but the truth is, you don't see a lot of joy in your life. You see a little bit of fatigue, a little bit of fear, a little bit of anger, and what you realize is that today you need to invite him in. Invite him into this moment. Invite him into this day. Invite him into your fear. Invite him into your fatigue. Invite him into your anger, whatever it is. And I also wanna give you the opportunity to make that declaration right now. You wanna just raise your hand right now because I wanna pray. My hand's up, I'll tell you that right now. Amazing. So let's pray. So Jesus, thank you that you are the restorer. Today, tomorrow, and forever. Thank you that because of you, the best is yet to come. The party's just getting started. Jesus, thank you that you came and you died on that cross. I pray that you would be my savior. I exchange my baggage and my sin for your righteousness and for your salvation. And thank you that you rose again so I can too today, tomorrow, and forever. Pray that a telltale sign of my life would be joy. And God, for those of us who have been doing the church thing for a while, here in October of 2022, when there's some people who are tired and some people who are scared, some people who are angry, God, we invite you in. We invite you in this moment, to this day. We open the door. We invite you in. You're faithful. And your restoration, your restoration is just getting started. In your name, amen. Amen. Let's celebrate. Well, once again, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. As Leah already mentioned, if you just raised your hand and invited Jesus into your life, man, we would love it if you would text the keyword life to 604-670-3040.
and also next week, next week, you have never honestly seen a switch in tone as rapid as what we're gonna see as we finish off John chapter two. Do not miss it. I love you guys. We'll see you then. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And to stay up to date with all things Southside, follow at Southside underscore church on Instagram. We love you guys. The best is yet to come.